Well, good morning once again, everyone. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16? Should be the last time you hear me say those words for a while. Because as we have been studying John's Gospel, we have worked our way into Jesus' final discourse, uh, which covers chapters 13 through 16. We'll cover and finish 16 today. And um, this was all given to his guys the night before his crucifixion. So his farewell address, as we've been calling it, and of course, he wanted to communicate to them what was uh, most weighing on his heart, the most important things he had taught them over the course of the last three and a half years. Of course, the main content of this discourse is that Jesus is going to be returning to the Father in heaven soon, which means he will soon be turning the work of the kingdom over to them. That's kind of the basic theme of that this whole discourse. Now, as we have said, even though he told them he was going away and they couldn't go with him, he promised he wasn't going to leave them alone and uh, alone and helpless like orphaned children, that he was going to send another helper who would abide with them forever, the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in chapter 14, verses 15 to 18. Uh, verse 23, which we looked at last time, but in that day, Jesus went on to say, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now, Jesus, Jesus is telling these men that in that day, when he returns to his Father in heaven, they would ask him nothing. Well, of course not, because he wouldn't be with them anymore physically, bodily, okay? But in that day, he said, they could take their needs directly to the Father in prayer, and the Father, who loved them deeply, would provide them with anything they needed in doing the work of the kingdom. So he's giving them that promise. Now, last week, we studied verses 23 and 4 topically uh, in presenting a message uh, on the joy of answered prayer. As we said last week, though, those verses belong to a larger context, which I like to now continue to look at. So, very simply, verses 25 and uh, 20 to 30 uh, is basically Jesus' proclamation. And he's just fin wrapping things up now. Uh, as I said, uh, chapters 13 through 16 constitute his uh, final words to his disciples before the cross. And so now we come to the end of this discourse. He's wrapping things up. He said in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when, when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I, will, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. The Greek word translated figurative language is a word that means to speak symbolically, using, you know, parables, allegories, different figures of speech. Commentator and author Warren Worsby, commenting on verses 25 to 27, said this, and I quote, he said, Jesus explained that there would be a new situation because of his resurrection and ascension and because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He would no longer speak to them in terms that demanded spiritual insight for their understanding. He would speak to them plainly and reveal 
and reveal the Father to them. There in the upper room, he had used a number of uh, symbolic images to get his message across. The washing of their feet, uh, the Father's house, the vine and the branches, the birth of a baby. That was verse 21 of chapter 16. In the days that followed, these images would become clearer to the disciples as they would be taught by the Spirit of God. The purpose of Bible study is not simply to understand profound truths, but to get to know the Father better. I will show you plainly of the Father, he said in verse 25. If our reading and Bible study falls short of this, it does more harm than good, end quote. That's an interesting statement, and I believe he's absolutely right. There's too many people who know the Word of God, but they don't really know the God of the Word. That sounds like a contradiction. I know people that are brilliant. They can rattle off verses, and they're theologians. I don't know them personally, but I, I, I read them, okay? See them on TV. But when you look at their lives a little bit, there's not a lot of maturity. It's kind of strange. Now, you can't have maturity without knowing the Word, but you can know the Word and still not be mature. It's all head knowledge. And there's a lot of pride there. Look what I know. Look at my degrees, right? And so we, we need to study the Word of God, but to know the God of the Word. Very simple. Now, verse 28, Jesus continues, I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. So I'm going back where I came from. Now, John began his gospel with an 18-verse introduction known as, a, as the prologue, the prologue, where he introduced us to the true Jesus, who before his incarnation was simply called the Word. If you want, you can turn back to John 1 where John begins by saying in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. That's a title for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's a theme that John not only introduces to start us off looking at his gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's a theme that Jesus stated over and over again throughout his public ministry, that he is God in human form, that he is equal with the Father, he is the Son of God, and so on. So he was in the beginning with God. Verse 2, all things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, folks, that's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's when God came to us. Now Jesus said, he was going, he had finished his work uh, during his earthly ministry, and now he was um, going to be returning to the Father. But uh, in chapter 16, verse 28, John is affirming once again the deity of Jesus and his equality with the Father. Look, if you're equal with God, you have to be God. There's no way Jesus could say that he was equal with the Father and be a lesser God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, or any one of a number of groups that want to make Jesus less than the Father. This was something that he proclaimed throughout his whole earthly ministry. And again, John 8, 24, if you don't believe that I am, he said, which is the name of God, that go in me, if you don't believe I am, you will die in your sins. This is a critical, uh, a critical doctrine for salvation. 
No one can believe, if anyone believes Jesus is not God Almighty, not, not a God, lesser God, one of many gods, uh, but the God Almighty. You don't believe that, you can't get to heaven. That's why as he's finishing up now, he's emphasizing these very important points, right? But the idea that he is was preaching this his entire message, uh, we have ministry, I should say. Uh, we've seen this and we've tried to pull out these things when we've gone through these various chapters, but in John chapter five, Jesus is talking to the Jews, and that's John's way of saying the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on. And he said in John 5, verse 17, but he said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working, because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. In the Jewish mind, the son was always equal to the father. The father is greater in authority, but when it came to personage, okay, uh, as, as, you know, the, the son was always equal with the father. And so they knew what he was saying when he said, God is my father. He was claiming equality with God. You can't be equal with God unless you are God. That's why they were so upset and uh, tried to kill him on several occasions, right? After he said something, things like, my I and my father are one. Okay, get the rocks. Get the rocks. Like, what happened? What did I miss? Well, they knew what he was saying. In their minds, he was committing blasphemy, claiming equality with God. Well, he would have been blasphemous if he wasn't God. Get with the program, guys. And, and again, now Jesus in verse 20 is basically saying, look, I came from the Father. I finished the work the Father's given me to do. Well, almost. He's, he, most of it will happen the next day, right? A few hours on the cross. But again, verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world to go, again, back to the Father, right? Now, I have to tell you, verses 29 and 30 are a little strange for me, okay? Uh, I'm just calling this the profession of the disciples. Verse 29, his disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly, because earlier, uh, just a few verses earlier, they're like, what are you talking about? You know, I, I, you know I'm, I, I, in a little while you won't see me, in a little while you see me because I go to the Father. What is he talking about? You know, he's using that par parables again or whatever, right? But now he, he, he says what he said in verse 28, and the disciples now say to him, now, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things. That's an attribute of God. He's omniscient. And have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Now again, I have to tell you that that profession of Jesus' disciples is a little confusing to me. And I checked a lot of commentaries yesterday to see what others had to say. And, uh, you know, when you don't know what to say, you say something that you think is kind of profound. But if you read guys, you know, Bible commentators long enough, you, you realize that sometimes they fall into this plume of verbiage when they don't really know what is the real answer. Now, not an essential doctrine. I'm just saying, though, uh, in some like a passage like this. Again, I'm a little taken back and somewhat perplexed that after being with Jesus for three and a half years and watching him constantly affirming his deity, 
uh, in divinity. And backing it up with miracles. He did dozens, if not hundreds of miracles over the course of three and a half years. And you would think that in itself would have convinced them of who he is. Remember what he said, I think, in chapter 14? Look, if you don't believe me, who I am, for the words that I speak, believe me for the works that I do. They testify that I have come from the Father, right? The miracles, right? After doing all this stuff, he, he comes to verse 28 where the Lord says, I've, you know, I'm done. I've come from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. For some reason, that was like an atom bomb went off in their heads. I'm like, yeah, now you're speaking plainly. Now we know you're God. I'm like, what? Like, what, what really? Verse 28, you're, you're freaking out that, wow, this is it. Now we really know you're from God. And I'm thinking, it's just hard for me to understand while at this late stage in their walk, with, I'm not saying these guys weren't saved. But it still seems like they haven't nailed down everything with regard to who Jesus is, even at this late date. I mean, he's hours from the cross by this point, right? Um, that verse 28 would cause them to finally profess a firm faith in Jesus' deity as one having come from the Father. To me, is a little, I don't know, it just doesn't, you know. One commentator, which kind of spoke for most of the commentators I, I read on this, he said, and I quote, the response of the disciples to the Lord's teaching was that now they understood and believed. Okay, wonderful. They felt the teaching was so plain that recognizing Jesus' omniscience, you know all things, they said to him, and divine origin, you came from God, it was their only proper response. Oh, it was so clear they had to affirm that faith in him. Um, okay, I still don't get it. I still don't get what the big revelation was in verse 28, that that was the thing that kind of tipped the scale, and, and right? The only thing I can think of, guys, is that like so many who profess faith in Jesus, their profession contained, listen, more enthusiasm than, than it did theology, more feelings than it did genuine faith. And we, we understand that. Jesus even taught through parables that some people have a very emotional response to the gospel. And yet many of them are not even saved. Now, I do believe these guys were saved. I don't believe Judas was ever saved, but he's gone. He's up carrying out his betrayal of Jesus, right? But if you doubt what I'm saying, Jesus goes on to kind of challenge their so-called um, statement of faith in his deity. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Do you now believe? One pastor and commentator said this, he said, and I quote, Though the disciples were honest and sincere in their affirmations of faith, Jesus knew their limitations far better than they did. The words, do you now believe, tell us that the disciples did have faith in Jesus, but it was not complete faith or a strong faith until after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. You will be scattered is a fulfillment of Zechariah's words. That comes out of verse 20, uh, 32, uh, where he talks about them being scattered. Uh, the author says, but uh, you will be scattered is the fulfillment of Zechariah's words, which spoke of the shepherd, Messiah, smitten by decree of the Lord Almighty, which resulted in the scattering of the sheep. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what happened. They all forsook him. When he was arrested in the garden, they split, okay? Peter followed at a distance. That was his problem. You don't follow Jesus at a distance. you got to stay real close to him because following Jesus at a distance 
Peter wound up denying, war, warming himself by the enemy's fire and denying the Lord three times. You want to stay close to Jesus, right? Uh, to, to have the strength of the Holy Spirit upon you. But in spite of the disciples' loyalty, faith, and love, they soon failed them miserably, unquote. Well, they did. Uh, I, I have to believe that if the disciples really, really believed that Jesus was, in fact, God in human form, um, they wouldn't have run for their lives when Rome arrested Jesus. They ran and hid because they thought they were next. Rome was coming for them next. That's why they were terrified, all right? Um, but how could Rome kill them if Jesus was turning the work of the kingdom over to them, right? How could, you know, how could Rome kill God unless God submitted to it? And I say God, I mean, of course, Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus was in control of this whole thing. Even in the garden, when they came to arrest him, as we're going to see, uh, they thought he, uh, you know, they were arresting him. No, he was allowing them to take him. Remember he said a couple of times, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, I, I am. Boom, they fell down, right? Bowling pins, right? Picked themselves up. Let me ask you again. In the Greek, it's all commands. It's all commands. Jesus is commanding them. He's in control. He's in charge. Who are you seeking? Well, Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Boom, knocked them over again, right? He said, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. He was no victim. Even in death, he was a conqueror. He submitted to it. That's the whole point, okay? Now, he gives these guys a prophecy. In verse um, 31, he sa it says again, Jesus answered uh, them, do you, believe, do you not believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, um, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. You're going to be scattered each to your own house or dwelling place. And you leave me alone, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Look, we've said this before. Let me say it again. I don't want to get too hard on these guys. They're doing their best, okay? They weren't spirit-filled guys at this time. I, I get that, okay? And I really believe those disciples were sincere in their profession of faith in Jesus that night, even as I believe Peter was sincere um, in his profession of loyalty to Jesus, which he had made earlier in the evening, I'll just read you from Matthew's gospel. It's a little more, uh, uh, more um, it's a little larger passage that gets more detail. Uh, but Matthew 26, verse 31, uh, then Jesus said to them, uh, all of you will be made to stumble, uh, be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to Peter, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And I believe Peter was flat out sincere. I really do. I really do. The problem is Peter and the other disciples at this point, even though they meant well and I, ha I think they had good hearts and they were sincere in their affirmation of faith in Jesus and how they would you know, stand by him to the end and not deny him, they were putting more confidence in their own strength rather than God's strength. Now, this is a common theme we've touched on many times, right? Paul said it succinctly in, I think it was 1 Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I'm not relying on my own strength, but relying totally on his strength, then I can, I'm really strong. 
And often God lets us use up our own strength where we have nothing left, no gas in the tank, you know. We're completely exhausted. We've run out of options, whatever the situation is. And now we come in desperation. Don't you know God loves it when we come desperate to him? Why does he love that? He just loved to make us crazy? No, when we come desperate, we come out of self, empty of self. And, and, and until we're desperate, we're not really emptied of self. So we're still trying to get in there and work it out in our own strength or our wisdom. And we just mess it up. And God often lets us struggle and struggle and struggle until finally we're so exhausted, we're so defeated, we just come to him in desperation and cry out, Lord, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. And that's when God takes away the alcoholism. That's when God delivers you from the pill. That's when God does miracles in our lives. Uh, the, the Lord has said in more than a few places in the Old Testament, I will never turn, turn you away when you come to me with a desperate, contrite, and broken heart. I'll never turn you away. That's what God wants when we're broken. It's not this self-confidence. Lord, if you just give me a little boost, I can, I can do it. Okay, just need a little help over the wall. But I, basically, Lord, I, I can take care of this. And God says, no, I'm not going to partner with you in your victory and growth you got to die to self and let me take over and that's just the name of that tune right so that brings us to the promise of jesus which is really the the i think the main point of this passage okay definitely the highlight okay verse 33 the promise of jesus these things i have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus closes this discourse with a word of encouragement, a precious promise. Verse 33 reminds us of what Jesus had promised his disciples earlier in the evening. Turn back to chapter 14, let's look at verse 27. Now at this time they're still in the upper room time you come to chapter 16, they're already just about at the Mount of Olives where he's going to spend the rest of the evening before being arrested. But Jesus basically starts the evening by telling them, look, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you can't follow me. They're broke, heartbroken. They're, they're, they're fearful. Uh, the thought of going forward without Jesus by their side, it was something they couldn't even get their minds around. And so he quickly responds by giving them this promise he says look verse 27 peace i leave with you my peace i give to you not as the world gives do i give to you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid guys and we've covered this before but jesus disciples were about to enter some of the most some of the most difficult days of their entire entire relationship with jesus his entire earthly ministry as he was preparing to go to the cross Three days later, he would be resurrected, and eventually he would return back to his Father in heaven. And so because their fear and anxiety, because fear and anxiety had gripped their hearts, the hearts of the disciples, the Lord made them, and really all of us who are his disciples, a promise. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now we've talked about this, okay? In fact, chapter 14, we studied this quite a bit. But this is a special supernatural peace He's promising them a kind of peace that the world can't offer and knows nothing about. 
When Jesus said that the peace he gives to those uh, the peace he gives to those who belong to him was not the kind of peace the world gives the troubled hearts. He's talking about the fallen world system of which the devil is in control. He's the God of this world, right? When, when, he, when John talks about the world, he's not talking about planet Earth and ecology and, and all of that. He's talking about the world system. And we're seeing the world system um, being exposed like never before around the world you realize oh my goodness I, I never realized the depth of what was going on behind the scenes which is now emerging coming to the forefront as the devil prepares now to bring forth a pseudo messiah who will lull the whole world basically well not the whole world obviously god will have his people but will lull the world into the ultimate deception before jesus christ comes back so this world system is controlled by the devil. We've, we know that. The devil knows that, and he loves to promote troubled hearts, by the way. He loves keeping people in fear. When people are scared, they're more easily manipulated and controlled. The devil wants to keep people fearful, anxious, uncertain about the future, troubled hearts, right? Because he knows that people can't function for very long in an environment of stress, turmoil, anxiety, and fear without, they can't function in that environment too long without feeling like they're going to have a nervous breakdown. So if they can't have peace naturally, the devil pushes them to grab for it artificially. What am I talking about? Well, through the use of, you know, all kinds of different uh, techniques and substances, um, the so-called peace the devil gives, and of course, by extension, the world, which he controls, uh, offers people peace through drugs, alcohol, hypnosis, <clears throat> transcendental meditation, otherwise known as TM, yoga, and whatever else will help, quote-unquote, yeah, a person escape the pressures that they are experiencing in life. He pushes people into anxiety and stress, into fear and turmoil. And then he comes right alongside them and says, well, here's the answer. Have a martini when you get home. That helps, right? Uh, you know, pop a, a pill here or there, right? Uh, get into Eastern mysticism. Oh, there's a lot of peace there. Practice yoga. Transcendental meditation. You know, that kind of thing. He causes the problem and then is right there with the cure, quote, unquote, which is worse than the problem. It leads people into greater bondage. You start out having a martini every night to give you some, some you know, to relieve stress, and pretty soon you're having a, or having a martini uh, twice a day or, or on the weekends all weekend long until finally what you thought was going to bring some rest is a bigger problem than the stress you were living under. It's all about escaping, though escaping the reality hang on to that because i want to just camp on that for a couple of minutes because god doesn't deal with stress in our lives by replacing it with something else okay i mean that the world is into escapism escapism you got a problem you can't deal with it don't deal with it get high 
just escape it. Your marriage is lousy. There's a lot of fighting and things. Don't work on your marriage. Just run away. Escape. Escape. Get separated or, or better get divorced, right? Um, that's the answer. To escape the reality you're in. Not to bring it to God and work through it by His strength and grace. We Christians, that's what we do. But not always either, right? Now, in extreme times of anxiety and pressure and depression, the devil tries to push people into the ultimate escape, which is what? Suicide. It's no mistake or accident that as our society devolves more and more into chaos, confusion, COVID madness is starting to re-resurrect again, right? It's a new variant from Africa. Oh, my goodness, lock everything down again. Never going to end, folks. It's never going to end. Devil wants you afraid. He wants you scared. Because then you will more readily submit to his minions who are in power. But it's, it's, it's no mistake or accident that as all this turmoil, we're in a very chaotic period, right? And, and, and COVID has been the main thing. It's no accident that alcoholism, drug abuse, and suicides have risen, have risen exponentially during this time. In contrast to this, Jesus said that he wants to give us true peace, not like the world gives, which is, again, artificial and often destructive. This peace is only found in Jesus, as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. True peace in life doesn't come from a pill or a program. It comes from a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Now in John 14, in the, this final discourse to his disciples the night before his crucifixion, Jesus introduces the subject of supernatural peace. And now in chapter 16, he brings that subject to its climax by saying in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me, well, that's a way of saying salvation. Paul picked up on that. In the whole book of Ephesians, that's the theme, those two words, in Christ. These things I have spoken to you, that in me, and only in me is the idea, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Notice that Jesus didn't promise that he would give us peace by taking away all the problems and pain in life. He promised to give us a supernatural peace, listen, during or in the midst of trials, tribulations, adversities, and pain that we experience in the world, in this life. Guys, again, you know this. Let me just repeat it again because here's where we are. For a lot of people maybe have not heard this teaching. But the Bible talks about two different kinds of peace that are associated with God. Peace with God and the peace of God. And let me say this, you cannot know the peace of God without first, without first experiencing peace with God. So quickly, peace with God. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Because this one gets into that little two-word statement, in me. In the world you will have tribulation. In me, you will have peace. Romans 5, verse 1, 
Paul said, therefore, having been justified by faith, listen, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's Word teaches us that when we were born into this world, we were born as children of Adam, of course, separated from God through the fall and at enmity with Him. In other words, we were rebels at war with God, having the wrath of God or God's judgment abiding upon us, John 3.36 tells us. The Bible teaches that at one time God also considered us His enemies. Uh, in other words, He was at enmity with fallen man. Let me stop here and say this. Yes, there are a lot of people who go through life determined not to speak to God, not to acknowledge His presence or even His existence, not to bow to His will. They're at war with God. That's true. Why are they at war with God? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I've met people that uh, hate God and are at war with God or have written God off completely because He allowed uh, someone very close to them to die, like a spouse or a child or a parent. Sometimes it was because he allowed them to, uh, you know, in their minds, he, he, he allowed me to get sick or he made me sick. I don't know. And so they got the word they have cancer, some other very uh, severe disease. Sometimes it's, you know, they've worked hard to establish a business for many years. And all of a sudden it's been wiped away, like with all the COVID lockdowns. How many businesses have gone out never to come back? And a lot of people blame God for that. And because of it, they blame him and want nothing to do with him. They, they hate God and have declared war on him. But I think the vast majority of people who are at war with God don't even know they're at war with God. They, they don't even realize they're at war with God. They would say, I, I've never been at war with God. I love God. And as proof of their love for God, they point out to you how religious they are. What they don't realize is that religion is another, is another form of rebellion against God. There, there are different kinds of rebellion. One is, you know, face-to-face -face with God in obstinate rebellion. Another one is you think you and God are on the same team. Because you go to church and light candles and pray rosaries and everything else. Uh, they don't realize that Religion is another form of rebellion against God. Just the Jewish people didn't realize as they embraced Judaism and they rejected their Messiah. Uh, you know, I've come in my father's name. You've rejected me. Another will come in his own name. Him you're going to receive. Talking about the Antichrist. But the idea is that the Jewish people were very religious. They embraced religion. They were the epitome of religionists. But in the process... Their religion was an affront to God who only wanted Judaism to be in place until Messiah could come and bring the new covenant in. When the Jews rejected Jesus and the new covenant and they continued to embrace Judaism, that's when they became rebellious. But they didn't realize that. They thought they were the great champions of spiritual truth. That's why Saul of Tarsus persecuted uh, those early Christians so vehemently. In their, his mind, they were a cult. He was standing up for God. He was on God. Jesus said it in the beginning of chapter 16, the time is coming when those who kill you, talking to his disciples, will think they're doing God's service. You remember what Paul said in Romans 10? And Paul was, of course, a Jew. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. 
For I bear, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They don't really know the right way. They don't know what God's way is, right? For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness have not submitted to God's righteousness or God's righteous way to bring us to him, having our sins forgiven and so on. And so returning to the point I was just making, the Bible presents a picture of God and man after the fall with their backs toward each other. Okay, now the fall has happened. In the garden before the fall, God and man were face to face in beautiful fellowship. Now the fall happens, okay? And imagine now God and man have turned their backs to each other with their arms folded maybe. You know? And that's what we see after the fall. And that would signify the enmity both had for one another. Man, fallen man, and God. But then Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And at that moment, God's righteousness was satisfied. The theologians say, use the word propitiated. It's a fancy word that means satisfied. Sin had been paid for. The righteousness of God, which requires payment for sin, was satisfied. This allowed God to turn now toward man. Now, man still got his back toward God, folding his arms in obstinate rebellion. But God is now turning because of what Jesus did in the cross and how that he paid for our sins. God now turned to man, facing man, with his arms extended, saying, come to me. I love you. I want to forgive you. Your sins have been dealt with. They've been paid for. There's no reason we should be at enmity with each other. And so God is now inviting fallen sinners to come to Jesus for forgiveness, eternal life, and so on. Well, many have. Hopefully everybody in this room, right? When a person accepts God's offer of forgiveness and comes to Jesus for salvation, that person is forgiven, yes. They are saved, and now they are in perfect, loving fellowship with God. Imagine, if you will, God and man now face to face. Again, as it once was in the garden. Face to face, God Almighty and saved mankind. Now, face to face in blessed communion. Oneness, what the word communion means, right? This is what Paul meant in Romans 5, verse 1, when he said, Having been justified by faith, saved, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, guys, the war is over. The war is over. We have laid down our hostility toward God and His commandments. We have surrendered our lives to Him in obedience as His servants. And in turn, He has forgiven us and adopted us into His family. It's quite a deal. What a deal. I, I can't for the life of me figure out why anyone would not want that. Okay? God gets my sin, and I get his righteousness. God takes my penalty, and in return gives me his paradise. I don't understand it, but there's a lot of people that don't like that deal and will have their backs toward God with their arms folded until they die. Now, peace with God, salvation, is essential if we're going to experience the second kind of peace the Bible talks about for the child of God, and only for the child of God, and that is the peace of God. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 quickly. 
In Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 6, Paul said, Now he's talking to believers now, so you know that. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is the kind of peace we need. I mean, at this point in our nation's history, at this point uh, with what we're going through, we are seeing the collapse of our nation. Uh, I pray that God will intervene, that Christians will get on our faces before God, plead for mercy. That God, I mean, Nineveh was 40 days from destruction. They repented. God gave them another 150 years. I just pray that God would move in the hearts of his people. That, you know, is what, Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Wow, that's, we should have that plastered everywhere we go as Christians. This is the kind of peace we need. The peace of God. Um, and only a child of God can experience this peace because it's an attribute of God's divine nature. It's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, right? Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's only found in God's nature. Fruit of the Spirit. Well, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering in others, okay? But true peace is an attribute of God. And the only way to have it is to have God's nature. It's, a, it's His nature. Uh, planted within us how do, does that happen well Peter says when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior at that moment the Spirit of God moves in and you become partakers of God's divine nature in other words God is in us now the Holy Spirit and he is going to produce within us if we want we don't have to he won't force the fruit of the Spirit onto, our, onto us how much do we want to have God's true love his true joy his true peace and so on we have to want that this peace is not automatic. I mean, it's not something where once we get saved, the peace of God simply dominates us all the time. Uh, it doesn't work that way. I mean, how can we lose God's peace? By getting your eyes off of God onto the circumstance. Remember Peter on the Sea of Galilee. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, I'm not sure he had, well, he had no doubt peace in the, in the sense that he was, uh, uh, convinced he could do the impossible, which he did for a while. As soon as he got his eyes off the Lord and began to look at the waves and felt the wind and uh, everything, was, he said he looked at the circumstance and that's when he began to sink. Guys, Paul said in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let it, implying it will if you don't strangle the life out of it. How do you do that? By worrying. By again, focusing on the problems and so on. I mean, Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, You will keep him or her in, in the way it's worded here is perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The Hebrew for that is peace, peace. You will keep him in peace, peace. It's their way of saying double peace or perfect peace. But to experience this, you need to have your thoughts 
stayed or fixed on God because you trust him and have absolute confidence in his ability and in his promises. This kind of peace comes through faith. And according to Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You ever notice how it always comes back to the basics? It always comes back to the basics. Peter said, I know you know this stuff, but I need to remind you again. It always comes back to the basics. Christianity is not hard to understand as a faith system. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. Can totally turn control of your life over to the Lord. Stay in his word. Stay in fellowship. Abide in Christ. And as you do, the Holy Spirit will energize faith in your heart. When problems come, you run right to Jesus. You won't sit down with your ring in your hands. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? No, you just go instinctively, reflexively to the Lord. You begin to remind him of the promises he's given you. Not that he needs to be reminded. you know. But we need to remind ourselves. And I believe as you remind God, you bring those, Lord, you promised that you would provide, we, we don't have any money to pay the mortgage or the rent this month. But you promised, Lord, you're going to take care of us. And you just bathe in that. You just meditate on that. And a strange thing begins to happen. Peace that surpasses human understanding starts to fill your hearts and minds. It's up to us, though. It's not going to be, you know, automatic. You have to pursue it. It's there if you want it. But we can still be basket cases. We can still be more focused on the problem than on the Lord. Christians can still be alcoholics, can still be drug addicts, can still even commit suicide because they have not taken the time to have their minds fixed on the Lord and his promises. That's the supernatural peace that only comes through Jesus. You have to be in him to experience it. That's peace with God. But then every day, to have the peace of God, you've got to walk in his truth. The just shall get saved by faith? Sure. But what does it say? The just shall what? Live by faith. The life that I now live, Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's make it a point to, to commit ourselves to being in the word like never before. We're going to need it, okay? We're going to definitely need it. I need that peace. You need it. We have to be people of the word, all right? Father, we thank you for these uh, closing words, Lord Jesus. What a phenomenal discourse, promising us so many wonderful things, reminding us of so many awesome truths. Lord, we just pray that you would give us grace to run to your word. Lord, the world is crumbling. The world is being shaken to a point where it's all coming apart. But Lord, knowing you, staying in your word, meditating on you, abiding in Christ, is the eye of the storm. The world is going through chaos, turmoil. But if we abide in Jesus, it will be the eye of the storm. We'll have peace. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.